Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Bruce Struxma. I am the senior pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. Uh, you may have noticed this morning, uh, we have some flowers up here and in the lobby, nice sign of spring. They were a gift uh, from Marina's family. Marina, we did a funeral yesterday for Marina, and uh, these were some flowers that were left by her family as a thank you to us as a church for opening up our building to them. Um, so please keep Marina and her fa- Marina's family in, in your prayers this week. Um, we've been working our way through Hebrews, and this morning we are finally to that section of Hebrews that many of you maybe thought of initially when we said we were going to do Hebrews. It is maybe one of the most famous chapters in Hebrews. Some call it the Hall of Faith. Um, it's one that gets a lot of traction. It's, it's full of, of stories and, and it, it just, it's energizing, right? It's this, it's this passage that just kind of fires you up. Um, but what you may also notice, and, and to be clear, I assume none of you have actually noticed this, uh, but that as we've been going through the series, the titles have been of the messages have been very God-focused. God's plan is limitless. God's holiness is limitless. And this week, we shifted, right? Have faith in our limitless God. Between this week and next week, as we wrap up Hebrews, which some of you have been ready for me to wrap up Hebrews for like six weeks, um, but as we wrap it up in the next couple of weeks, our focus is going to change. Our focus is going to change a little bit away from the limitlessness of God to our response, to how we respond. And several years ago, I had the opportunity. Um, I'm not a runner. I know that shocks many of you as you look at me up here. Um, I have what many would call the runner's physique. Um, my wife, however, is a runner. Uh, she's done a few marathons, and um, one of those marathons, or half marathons, I forget which one, which one it was, but I got the opportunity to hear an Olympic marathoner speak at the pre-run event. And this Olympic marathoner got up and he spoke about the experience of running the marathon in the Olympics. And for the record, he was a gold medal Olympic marathon runner. And uh, so hearing him speak, and he talked about this experience where I didn't know this at the time, but when they run the marathon, it's, I think it's the last event in the Summer Olympics. And they run them, you know, through the host city, all around, you know, the 26 miles. And then they enter them into the stadium, the main stadium where they do the opening ceremony and all the track and field events. And their last section of the race is around the track. So when they cross the finish line at the track, they finish their marathon. And so um, he, he talked about this experience that, that as you enter the stadium, that first runner, there is a roar from the crowd. There's this big roar as the first runner enters the stadium uh, because they've been sitting there for a while, depending on how fast the fastest runner is. They've been sitting there a while waiting in anticipation for this person to enter the stadium and the crowd erupts. And I would imagine that that's a pretty powerful experience. Uh, he made it sound like it would have been a powerful experience. Even the time he won, it turns out somebody jumped the fence and entered the stadium ahead of him. And so everybody cheered for that person, then realized it wasn't a runner, and then he entered and they missed it. Um, so unfortunately, he never had that experience, but he talked about, boy, you know, you would enter and you'd be rounding the track and how energizing that would be. 
And I kind of want us to have that picture in our head because our author in Hebrews is going to kind of use the same idea, this running analogy as we unpack it. And, and so here we are as we are entering the stadium as we finish Hebrews. Our focus is going to shift a little bit to our response, right? And I think our author has been building to this. We've been talking about the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. And now we're going to kind of shift to our response. How do we respond knowing that we have the ultimate high priest? We have the ultimate in Jesus Christ. And so our focus is going to shift. And, and we're going to shift. And we're also going to talk about how we take this forward, we're gonna build up some skills and anybody who's been involved in an athletic sport or endeavor, or maybe you're in more a, a, a musician person, um, maybe you're a, a cooking, but any of these skills that we have, we learn the basic skills. And I remember having a coach who said, the reason we learn these basic skills is not only to, to learn to do it well, but because later on, when we're in an event and we're fatigued and we're tired, it's going back to those basic skills that carries us through. When you're a runner and you hit the wall, it's focusing on your form that carries you through. When you're, you know, um, for me it was swimming. I was a distance swimmer and when I hit the wall, swimming the long distances, it was focusing on the form. And we're gonna kind of go into that this morning and talk about what is our form? What is our form of faithfulness that when we hit the wall of spiritual fatigue, the form carries us through. Remembering the basics, going back to those skills. And, and a couple of weeks ago, I saw this acted out. If any of you watched the state high school boys hockey tournament, and I watched most of it, um, there were several games that went into overtime and two specifically that went into double overtime. Those boys on the rink, they were exhausted. They were beyond fatigued. They were like, I think I could have outskated them at that point. But their form was still there. That's what carried them through. And so that's what we're gonna look at this morning. And so our first skill, our first form to remembering our faithfulness, our, to, to encourage us to have faith in our limitless God, is reminding ourselves that faithful living is God-focused. Faithful living is God-focused. And I hear this all the time, and these aren't bad sayings. I don't mean to, to you know, malign people who say it, but, but we'll hear people say, well, I have faith in my family. I have faith in my friends. I have faith in my sports team. And if you're a Purdue, Arizona, Kansas fan, you've learned the folly of those words. But I have faith in these things. And, and that isn't bad because that faith is a little different than having faith in God right? And that's what I want to focus on is faithful living is God-focused and not focused on ourselves. And our passage this morning is going to make it clear that our faith needs to be God-focused. And we can have faith in a friend and we can have faith in family, but it is fundamentally different than the faith we should have in Christ. Because all the others can and will let you down your family, your friends, your government, your coworkers, all eventually will let you down. You'll be disappointed. I don't think I need to explain that to any of us. We, we've experienced that. But here, our faith in Christ is different. Our faith becomes our anchor. A God-focused faith, when life falls apart, maintains its integrity. 
The definition of faith does not apply outside of Jesus Christ, this definition. And I should have faith, like I said, in those other things. I, I should have faith that my airline pilot is going to get me to my destination. I, that shouldn't prevent me from getting on the airplane, but even in that context, I know that sometimes those things fail. And it's really, really rare, but I can continue to have faith in that. And that is fundamentally different than the faith we're called to have in Jesus Christ, because it is contingent. It is contingent on a broken world. It is contingent upon broken people, and Jesus Christ is neither of those things. So we'll pick it up this morning in Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So as we talk about our definition of faith in Jesus Christ, it is the confidence in what we hope for. And this confidence in what we hope for is not the same kind of faith that I'll have the confidence that my airline pilot will land the plane. It's the kind of confidence that we have that the sun will rise when it's the middle of the night and we're scared and we're anxious and we can't sleep. It's that confidence that what we have will be obtained in ways that are outside the bounds of human mistakes. And the word picture we get from our author is the same as that kind of legal guarantee of ownership, that idea that I have the title in hand. I have the deed in hand. I know this to be true, right? It's that idea that, nope, you can't take this away from me because I know I have it. That's the confidence we have in Jesus Christ. We can hold on to it like an unrealized title. We have the title, we have the deed, we just haven't obtained the item yet. And that is a certainty we should have. And as our passage continues, it lays the groundwork for the list of names coming up. And it's gonna list a bunch of them. Names we all have probably heard. And it says, this is what they were commended for, not for their actions. They did some pretty incredible stuff. The people we're gonna see in this chapter did some amazing things, but notice that they are commended for their faith, not the outcome. They are commended for their faith in Jesus Christ, in God. Their confident expectation that God would do what God had said, even when they never experienced it. And many of them didn't. We'll see through our list that some of them, the thing they were hoping for, the thing they were desiring, the thing God had put on their heart was never realized in their lifetime. And they are commended for their faith, because their faith was in their God. And as if to drive this idea home even further, look at our first example. Our first example is not any human person, it's God himself, God the creator. That is our first example. We have the confidence that this God who creates the visible from the invisible is the God who's in charge. That is the God we put our faith in. The God who can look at nothingness, speak words, and create all that we see. That is where our confidence lies. So we have this faith. 
And then we get into these first two human examples in Abel and Enoch, and those might not be stories you're familiar with, and, and that's fine. I would encourage you to read them. All the stories that we go through here in this chapter, if you have not heard those stories, if you've not read those stories, I would encourage you, go find the original version. Go read the story, and, and if you need help finding where it is, the study guide lists them all and where they're found. The digital version makes it even easier. If you go find that email, you can just click on it and it'll take you to the story. You don't even have to find it yourself. But I would encourage you, look in those stories. Refresh yourself. If you don't know Abel, if you don't know Enoch, if you don't know the story of Moses, read those stories. Because they will show us that our faith needs to be focused on our creator. And as verse six continues, and without faith it is impossible to please God. We are reminded that it is not through our efforts, our actions, our outcomes that we please God. It's by having faith. Faith in him, putting our trust in him, pleases him more than any outcome that we can get. So where do we need to confess because our faith has been on ourselves? Where do we need to confess because our faith has been on our own actions, our own efforts? Where have we put faith on fallible people and trusted them instead of trusting our limitless God? Where is our faith grounded? Because we know that seeing the unseen is really challenging at times. Praying continually for that thing that you want, that thing that you feel God has put on your heart, that thing you desired more deeply than anything else and not realizing it is hard. To see the unseen at times is even impossible for us. And so we trust that God, that God that can create out of nothing, that he sees where we do not. And so we put our faith in him. And that is our first skill, our first reminder. Is our faith in our limitless God or in ourselves? Our faith must be based on Christ. And so we're gonna move into this impressive list of heroes. And, and I bet if I asked people in this room, you could create your own list of heroes of the faith. Maybe it's a parent or a mentor or, or a, a grandparent or somebody you know. Uh, we could create this list. And they're impressive lists. And this list in Hebrews 11 is impressive. For our author, this is a summary of the history of Israel. And their goal is for us to see the role that faith plays in their history. And before we get overwhelmed with the list of names or before we put the people in our own past on a pedestal and hold them too high, we must remember our second skill to carry us through. And our second skill is this, that faithful living does not require perfection. Faithful living does not require perfection. When we talk about living faithfully, the expectation is not that you and I will be perfect because that's not possible. And so we need to remind ourselves of how God often works in his way, in his time. See God at work. See God at work in the normal broken people around you. See God at work in your own inadequacy. See God at work as we look through this list of names in their brokenness and inadequacy. They were not perfect people. One of the things I value about scripture, one of the things that I appreciate is that the only perfect person in scripture is Jesus Christ. The Bible is pretty clear to list other people's faults as well as their successes. So we can remind ourselves that we don't need to be perfect. God is, and our faith is there. And so when we fall short, so did so many other people who God continued to use. And so we've already listed two people, Abel and Enoch, um, and now our list is gonna go on. 
and what many would call the hall of faith. And we don't have time to read this whole section or to tell all of their stories. So again, I would encourage you to do that on your own. But I want to kind of summarize briefly who they were as well as what our author highlights them for. And our first one is in verse seven, Noah, who in holy fear built an ark from Genesis six. But don't forget that after building the ark and after surviving the flood, Noah also made a vineyard and got drunk. In verse eight, Abraham obeyed and went, it says, from Genesis 12, even though he did not know where he was going. But don't forget that Abraham also went to Egypt and hid there and lied about who his wife was to protect his own neck. In verse 11, Sarah considered him faithful who made the promise in Genesis 18. But she also laughed when the angel of the Lord told her that she would have a child. And she laughed again and named her son laughter when God changed that laughter from a laughter of doubt to a laughter of joy. And it goes back to Abraham and says he reasoned that God could even raise the dead as he sacrificed his son on the altar. But he who embraced the promise, it says, which reminds us that faith is a lifelong pursuit. We notice that Abraham is listed twice. And we see that Abraham pursues God throughout his entire life. It's not a one-time event. And we also remember that this is the same Abraham who tried to create an offspring on his own power instead of trusting the Lord to move. Or verse 21, Jacob, when he was dying, worshiped while leaning on his staff. But Jacob also got through most of his life by deceit and manipulation. Or Joseph, who spoke about the Exodus and commanded the people that when you leave, take my bones with you because we were not destined to stay here in Egypt. It's the same Joseph who taunted his brothers about the dreams God had given him that God would lift him up. Or verse 23, Moses' parents who were not afraid of the edict. And it goes on to say about Moses in verse 24 that Moses looking ahead to his reward And so we see with both of these, this forward look, but we also see that they try and do it in their own power. Moses specifically tries to do it in his own power. Moses goes and murders an Egyptian when he sees him abusing an Israelite and tries to do it on his own. And verse 29, Israel crossed the Red Sea, toppled Jericho. That's referencing the book of Exodus and the book of Joshua. But if you read those books, they're also full of a lot of grumbling and dissent. Or we see Rahab, who is labeled the prostitute in Joshua, and from Joshua 6. And we also need to remind ourselves that she's part of Jesus' family lineage. And I highlight these negative sides of it not to lessen their accomplishments or lessen who they were or lessen their faith, quite the opposite. I think the people that our author of Hebrews is writing to when he wrote this book, knew these stories well enough that when they see the name and what they're commended for, they naturally think, of those failings as well. And I think we sometimes miss that. In our culture, especially biblically culture, our Christian culture, we tend to whittle down these stories to, and I'm guilty of this as much as anybody, to three solid points that can be covered in 30 minutes. And we hit the highlights, and we hit the top points. And so my goal is not to to, besmirch their character, it's to remind us that when we see them in this hall of faith, we cannot put them up on a pedestal and assume they were perfect. And therefore assume that for God to use me, I need to be perfect like Abraham. Well, actually I do need to be perfect like Abraham, which is not perfect. 
I am not perfect and God can still use me and you are not perfect and God can still use you. Faithful living does not require perfection. As we talk about following Jesus, we talk about following Jesus' broken and flawed people, all of us. So what is our author's point here? Well, it is the same as their definition of faith. It is Christ-centric. We should be focused on Christ. We see that the faith of these people was not in the outcome. They're commended for their faith, not because of what they did, but because their focus was on their God. Their focus was on the unrealized. Their focus was on where God was moving. It does not require perfection. And we, see, we are to see in them the pattern that despite our shortcomings, God can use us. And we can be people of faith. So their example exists to encourage us to continue to trust as we follow God. And our author brings that point home as he picks up the story and drops these hall of faith people and moves on to a bunch of anonymous people that we don't know. Starting in verse 32, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that might gain an even better resurrection. And at this point, you might be cheering along going, yeah, God, I want a piece of that life. I want that kind of faithful living. I want to receive the dead back from life. I want to shut the mouths of lions. I want to see nations conquered. But it goes on. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And I think we're a little less enthusiastic about that second half. I mean, I don't see people gathering around going, yeah, I want to be jeered, I want to be flogged, I want to be destitute, I want to live in a cave, I want to wear sheepskins and goatskins but they are also commended for their faith. And in some ways, it's harder, I think, to live faithfully in those situations than maybe it is when everything seems to be going your way. Because I think what the temptation is, when everything seems to be going my way, I can think it's all on me. Look at how good I am at doing this. Look at when people are coming to faith, when we're seeing success, we can sit there and go, it's me. I mean, there's countless books written by pastors and leaders about how to influence the world on these three skills, these four skills. And I think what we see here is that we need to maintain that Christ-centric focus, that it's not me. That if God is at work, my goal is to just not get in the way. My goal is to walk with Christ, to follow him, to do my best, but to acknowledge that I am coming as a flawed and broken person. So what are you facing? What are you facing and is your faith only justified if the desired outcome happens? 
Where is the spot where you're facing the jeering or the flogging or maybe a feeling of destitution that you're going, God, I will continue to trust you if you fix this my way. And where is our encouragement from this to go, God, I am a broken and flawed human and so I'm gonna trust you. Whether the desired outcome happens or not, I'm gonna continue to trust you. No matter the earthly outcome we receive, or is our faith on the glory of God instead of the desired outcome? So I'd encourage you, share the stories with others where God is moving in your life, but share them like Hebrews does, both the positive and the negative, the struggles and the triumphs, the wins and the losses. And our last skill, faithful living takes perseverance and discipline, which are not exactly fun words to hear. Yay, perseverance, discipline. I've been following the story online. Uh, I found three guys. Uh, their, their name is the three old guys. That is not the name I gave them. Uh, that is their name. It's the three old guys um, ride to Alaska. And it's the story of three guys, and they're doing it right now. They're somewhere in the Northwest Territories. Uh, they're at Fort Smith, Fort Smith in the Northwest Territories and heading for Hay River, Northwest Territories. There they are, the three old guys. They left from Grand Rapids, Minnesota by snowmobile. And they're heading up to Fairbanks, Alaska after going to the Arctic Ocean. 4,000 miles on a snowmobile, which... For the record, if you look at that map, once you get to Tuktoyuktuk on the Arctic Ocean, and I think that's how you say it, you then go south into Alaska, which I never want to travel south into Alaska. <laughs> never do I want to travel south into Alaska. But that's what they're doing. And they're, 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 it's a 4,000, they left like 10 days ago on snowmobile. And it's going to be challenging. They're going to face hardships. They didn't wake up one day and look at each other and say, you know what we should do? We have a 1984, you know, Arctic Cat 400. We should take that and drive it to Alaska. They, this took planning. They bought brand new snowmobiles. They bought gear. They tested gear. They bought more gear. They developed their own gear. They got sponsors. They got supporters. They, they built the system because this trip will take some guts. And on the trip, it will take effort. And they've already run into hardships. One of their snowmobiles caught fire on the trail. A stick went through the exhaust system and started burning. And they kept going. I mean, not while it was on fire. They put out the fire and then kept going. But it's gonna take guts. It's gonna take perseverance. But what is really cool to me about the trip is the fact that I'm watching them from the safety and comfort and warmth of my own home. Because they're sharing pictures, they're sharing images, they're sharing their GPS tracker so that people, family and friends, but 3,000 people are following them on this journey and cheering them on. And they have said that when they face some of these hardships, what keeps them going is knowing their family and friends back home are cheering them on, and knowing that the people that they've met along the trail continue to support them and cheer them on. Last night for dinner, I didn't have a chance to put a picture. Of, you can go find their Facebook page if you want. I didn't have time to get the picture on. They had moose tongue for supper last night, 
which I don't know, you know, that sounds like a potluck dish that should show up at the game feed in a couple of weeks. So if anybody has moose tongue laying around, I'd be interested in getting some of that. But they've talked about this encouragement that they're getting from those around them. Because perseverance in the face of challenges and discipline really should be a team effort. We need those people cheering us on like the hall of faith. And so again, we have this word picture where we see these people cheering from the stands like the marathon runner. The the people we know currently in our life and the people that have gone before us are cheering us on, pushing us towards faithful living because it's going to take perseverance. The image is not a sprint, a marathon. And so it's gonna take perseverance. In Hebrews 12, another very famous passage, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And so that is the perseverance part. And talks about throwing off those things that hinder and entangle. And back then they would literally wear a giant robe out into the stadium before they would run. And like we see track runners now wearing their warmups, tossing them aside, or basketball players with the tearaway pants, they would take off the big billowy robe and cast it aside so as to run the race unencumbered. What are those things that are encumbering us, those concerns, those frustrations, those temptations that we're allowing again and again to trip us up and to entangle us? How do we run with perseverance? What do we need to cast aside? So we run. We run throwing off that which hinders. We run the race with perseverance. We push on keeping our eyes focused on Jesus Christ, knowing that we are in it for the long haul. And starting in verse seven, it goes further. Endure hardships as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had much, have had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And this is the discipline part, and it's not as easy to pick up in our language, but the author has shifted analogies. He's moved away from running and started talking about boxing or fighting. The idea that discipline here draws pain. Discipline, though, in in fighting develops who you are. I was talking to somebody yesterday who talked about learning to box and learning to fight and how their dad would say to them, keep your chin down, keep your chin down, keep your chin down. And after the third time, if they didn't get, get their chin down, he'd hit them in the throat. I'm not recommending that as a training technique. He said, I didn't put my chin up ever again. Keep your hands up, keep your hands up, keep your hands up, and then bop them in the face. Now you remember to keep your hands up. 
It's that idea that we see. This discipline, while painful, is not meant to harm us, but to teach us. And this is a complicated thing, and it gets complicated because we live in a broken and messy world. Am I saying, is our author saying that, dis, that anytime hardship, that we face hardship, it's because we are somehow disobedient? No. Am I saying that anytime we face hardship, it's only because we live in a broken and fallen world? No. We don't always know. Sometimes we face discipline because we have been disobedient. Sometimes we face discipline because we live in a broken and fallen world. And oftentimes, I don't think we know which one it is. But we do have the opportunity to grow and learn. Because like a fighting analogy, our enemy, our opponent is going to give no ground. Our enemy wants us to experience nothing but pain and hardship. And so we need to push into discipline and learn to grow. To grow. And we need to prepare for the fight of our lives. So when we experience pain and hardship, we do need to look for opportunities to grow. What is the lesson in this, God, that you are teaching me? How can I endure? How can I learn in this discipline? But we should not approach with the fatalism of some that this is all my fault for my sins. That somehow everything that goes wrong in my life is because I've somehow angered God. And so you see, it's tricky. But we have the opportunity to learn in those hardships. So we must trust our coach, which is Jesus Christ, that he wants what's best for us, that he cares deeply for us. And we take the opportunity to learn, not dependent on the outcomes being what we want, but trusting that he is a faithful God and continuing to live in faithfulness because he is our focus and not ourselves, that he is our focus and not the outcomes, that when things fall apart and go wrong, he is our focus, which encourages us to push through to the very end because we are in it for the long haul. The skills our coach has taught us carry us through so we can continue to have faith in our limitless God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you are God and we are not. And Lord, help us to continue to be faithful even when life doesn't make sense. God, even when there are times where it feels like everything around us is falling apart. And God, whether some of that is through poor choices on our own, or God, simply because we live in a broken and fallen world, God, help us to trust you. God, help us to rely on those skills you have taught us to keep our focus on you, to keep pushing through. God, to know that it's not on us to be perfect, but it is on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so Lord, we continue to have faith in you even when we don't see the way out. And God, we ask for your help to trust. Pray this in your name, amen. From 2 Thessalonians chapter two, verses 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.